Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you listen regularly at BethEmmanuel.org, consider supporting us with regular financial gifts and become a virtual member. Click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org to learn more. We've come now to the pinnacle of the whole epistle. So he's been... We've seen him build this careful, careful argument all the way for why these upstarts need to step down, why they need to uh, get in line. And so he's now he's uh, going to shift gears a little bit and start giving them specific instructions on what to do next now that he's made his full argument, uh, specifically what the upstarts should do next. He says, For you know... And know well the sacred scriptures, dear friends, that you have searched into the oracles of God. We write these things, therefore, merely as a reminder. This is nice because it tells us that Clement assumes that his readers are biblically literate, which gives us a little snapshot of the first century believers. When Moses went up to the mountain and had spent 40 days and 40 nights in fasting and humiliation, God said to him, Moses, Moses, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you let out of Egypt have broken the Torah. They have quickly turned away from the path which you established for them. They have cast for themselves some idols. All right, so we all know that story. Clement knows that his readers know that story. And he says, And the Lord said to him, I have spoken to you time and again, saying, I have seen this people. They're stiff-necked, or stiff-necked, stiff-necked indeed. Let me destroy them completely, and I will wipe out their name from under heaven, and I will make you into a great and wonderful nation, far more numerous than this one. Moses said, May it not be so, Lord. Forgive this people their sin, or else wipe me also out of the book of the living. All right, so we all know that story. Clement knows that story. Clement knows that his readers know this story. Moses offers to exchange his life on behalf of the people. And Clement sees this as, of course, he sees the messianic capacity in this, that Moses is acting in a messianic capacity, interceding on behalf of the people. And so he's calling on his readers, and specifically the schismatics, the the upstarts, he's calling on them to take on the same attitude, to demonstrate the same attitude. So he says, what mighty love, and he's speaking of the love of Moses for the people of Israel, What unsurpassable perfection. The servant speaks boldly with his master. He asks forgiveness for the multitude and demands that he himself also be wiped out with them. So this is Moses' ploy. This is how Moses brings about atonement on behalf of the people of Israel. He identifies himself with the people. It's the messianic reflex, I I think. This is exactly how Yeshua also uh, brought about redemption by identifying himself completely with the people and suffering on behalf of the whole of the people. So that's chapter 53. So what's the point? I mean, why, why is Clement bringing this up, uh, this whole thing about Moses? And what does that have to do with anything? Well, he's going to make it clear now. He's going to say, Now then, who among you is noble? Who is compassionate? Who is filled with love? And of course, everybody's going to say, well... I am. I'm noble, compassionate, and filled with love. So, who is filled with love? Let him say, if it is my fault that there are rebellion and strife and schisms, I retire. 
And uh, here, retirement is not, um, you know, it's not retirement from work, but retirement from your, your office. So if I'm causing problems in the congregation, I should step down. In other words, if, if I'm causing disruption in the congregation, then I should step down. And this is what he's asking these upstarts who have assumed leadership. They've displaced the leadership and they've assumed leadership. And it's created this great uproar. We're not talking about you know people arguing over the color of the carpet or something like this. We're talking about a great uproar that in fact has has uh, been heard about all over and even among the non-believers, this great schism. So he says you should retire rather than, you know, if, if, you're, if you're the cause of this. This is the sacrifice you should make. Just like Moses was willing to be blotted out of the book of life for the sake of the people of Israel. He's saying, blot me out of your book for the sake of the people. You should be, at least, if, if Moses is willing to like uh, be blotted out of eternal life, you should at least be willing to step down from your position. Uh, he says, um, if it's my fault, this is what you should say, if it's my fault that there are rebellion and strife and schisms, I retire. I resign. I quit. I will go wherever you wish. I will do whatever is ordered by the people. Only let the flock of the Messiah be at peace and with its duly appointed elders, its duly appointed leadership. The one who does this will win for himself great fame in the Messiah. This is what always frustrated me about our schismatics. You know, it's like, uh, you know, why not take this attitude? If, you know, if you like, you can't agree with the leadership or you can't, you know, you can't, um, you know, you're upset about the way, the direction the community is going or whatever it is that's making you, giving you all this angst that causes all this uproar. Why not just sacrifice it for the sake of the peace of the body of Messiah and just say, okay, I'm going to, you know what, I'll, I'm going to step back and I'm just going to go my way. I'm not going to cause disruption. Just This is what Clement recommends. He says, The one who does this, who behaves like this, <clears throat> will win for himself great fame in Christ, and every place will receive him. For the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So it's like, that's and that's the truth. If, if I'm unhappy with this community. If I was a congregant going here and I couldn't stand me, I mean, I mean the leader, I mean the leadership. <clears throat> so I couldn't stand me. I'd have two choices. You know, it's like I have a big argument with the leadership. I'd have two choices. I could either, uh, you know, make waves and, and do my best to bring about change and disruption and that sort of thing and, and create schism. And, and, uh, or I could just quietly, you know, step you know, say, okay, this is just not for me and go someplace else, which is exactly what Clement is saying. Just Maybe you just go someplace else and um, <clears throat> see, you know, it, then you'll be received someplace else. You'll be received well someplace else. But if you create this disruption, you're not going to be received well in the next place you go to. And we know, you know, that's, that's the case. That's, it's not, I mean, you might be received well at first, but it's like there's this spirit that comes with you, you know, this spirit of disruption. <clears throat> These are the things that those who live as citizens of the commonwealth of God, something not to be regretted, have done and will continue to do. So I like this language here. 
those who live as citizens of the commonwealth of God. It's just another way of saying the kingdom of heaven, the commonwealth of God. But those who are already living as citizens of the messianic era, of the kingdom of heaven, this is how they behave. How do we know? Well, this comes directly from the teaching of Yeshua. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful, the humble, you know, this, this sort of thing. This, this is what characterizes a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And Clement can contrast this. He doesn't, but he could. He could contrast this to a citizen of Rome. Olam Haze, this current world. Olam Haze is Rome in his day. And Olam Haba, of course, is the kingdom. So he could contrast that with you know, Roman ambition, Roman pride, Roman dignity. Rome is like everything was, is built in that Roman world around defending the self and, the, and, and you know, this, this sort of this pompous approach to life is really no different today, except it seems a little bit more naked be, because when we read Roman literature and this sort of thing, it's like, um, you know, the sentences never end. They just go on and on and on. But <clears throat> same idea. Not so the disciple of Yeshua, not so the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We're supposed to be a totally different breed, totally different breed of human being. So that's chapter 54, I'm calling it Sacrifice for Peace. All right, so chapter 55, Clement gives us more examples. He gives us, he already gave us the example of Moses, in the previous uh, chapters, he gave us the example of Moses, who was willing to sacrifice himself in his place in the world to come on behalf of his people, which is very similar to what Paul says. I was just reading in Paul, I think in Romans 9, you know, when he's, he makes almost the exact same statement. He says, uh, you know, I have undying sorrow in my heart on behalf of the people of Israel. I would gladly wish myself accursed, condemned. If I could trade places. Anyway, so he's already given us this example of Moses. And then he goes on now uh, to give us some more examples. And I like how he, he begins. He says, let us moreover bring forward some examples of Gentiles as well. Now, of course, Clement realizes that he's writing to Gentiles, that a lot of the Corinthian believers are Gentiles. But when he uses Gentiles in this sense... He's not making a distinction in, in that regard of uh, you know, Gentiles versus Jews, but rather he's just speaking broadly of ethnos, of the nations, the pagans, the, the non-believers, the, uh, you know, the, the idolaters even. So, for example, he says, In times of pestilence, many kings and rulers, being prompted by some oracle, you know, some oracle from the gods, have given, have given themselves over to death that they might rescue their subjects through their own blood. Now, if I wasn't so lazy, I would have looked up some stories you know, that we could have looked at together and said, okay, let's read the story of this guy, Argamemnon, <laughs> something like this, you know. Let's read the story of, um, oh, you know, these Greek stories, these Greek and Roman stories, they always have the same thing. There's a terrible plague, and then you find out, you know, it's the leader's fault, and and then he has to um, atone for the transgression. And so what does he do? He sacrifices his life. So Clement's appealing here, actually, to pagan literature. I say, you know, okay, let's set aside the biblical examples for a second. I mean, just even the Gentiles, even the godless, even the idolaters, understand sacrifice for the sake of the common good. 
And that's true. That, that was a big ethic of the Roman world, was sacrifice for the sake of the common good. That you, you set aside your prerogatives for the sake of the society. He goes on to say, uh, many have uh, left their own cities that there might be no more rebellions. That's, I'm sure that's true. Uh, and we know that many among us, so now he's no longer speaking of these pagans, of these idolaters, these ethnos, but he's speaking of believers. And this is some very powerful words here that gives us, give us a little glimpse into the first century. He says, we know that many among, of us, uh, among us have had themselves imprisoned that they, may, they might ransom others. And this was a surprise to me when I was preparing for tonight's notes. I thought, um, really? So you could go, like if, if there was somebody who was imprisoned, you could go and say, hey, I'll trade places with so-and-so, arrest me and let that person go. But then I thought about it and it's like, yeah, that does make sense. I think Roman law would work that way. Now, I haven't looked it up or anything like that. But uh, I know of lots of situations where, for example, um, King Herod, uh, his sons were raised in the court of Caesar. It's a big honor, you know, to be in the court of Caesar. You know, it's like they were uh, homeschooled in Caesar's palace. But um, why is this? Well, it's because King Herod was a client king. And as long as his sons were in Rome, Caesar Augustus knew that Herod would not revolt against him because he had his sons hostage. And so it wasn't just Herod. It was This is the way that the Romans worked with all their client kings. They took their children to educate them, quote-unquote, in Rome. And they did give them great educations. But there was also the, the knowledge that if you revolt against us, we will kill your children. I think this could work on the same, the same principle. Now, Clement's referring to the Domitian persecution, where people were, you know, we learned about that earlier in the class where Domitian learned, the emperor learned about believers for the first time. He learned that there's all these all these Gentiles who have wandered into Jewish ways. So he's arresting them. He's arresting them left and right. But apparently, in the, in the, among the believers in Rome, there were some who would volunteer to go stand in for those who had been arrested and say, you know what? Arrest me. I will be... It's like bail. It's like paying bail. You know, where you, you get arrested and then you put down bail that you won't run before your trial. And so what they're, they're doing is they're saying, I will, I will be the bail on this person. Which is a, you know, that's a, a sacrificial gesture for sure. Uh, so he says, we know that many among us have them, themselves been imprisoned that they might ransom others. And many have sold themselves into slavery. And with the price received themselves, the, the, the price that they received for themselves, they have fed others. So if you became extremely destitute in the Roman world, you couldn't declare bankruptcy. You had to, you, you, there was only one recourse left for you, and that was to sell yourself as a slave. And say, hey, you know, and then you could, you know, your creditors, of course, could seize the value of your sale. Uh, or uh, in this case, what we see is that um, we see early believers actually, who are clearly destitute. I mean, this is, Paul tells people not to do this, not to become slaves. But 
it, it appears that we're looking at some people who have no other choice. Uh, they sold themselves into slavery, and with the price, they gave it to charity. The price of, of their, that, that they got for themselves. They sold themselves. He goes on, many women, being strengthened by the grace of God, have performed many manly deeds. That's what it takes for a woman to perform a manly deed. She needs the grace of God, right? Well, so what is he talking about? Now he's no longer talking about Gentiles whatsoever, or even uh, Christians, but he's talking about, he's going to give us some examples from Jewish history. For example, the blessed Judith. You know Judith. You know the story of Judith. It's a Hanukkah story. We read it at Hanukkah. It's in the Apocrypha. It says, When the city was under siege, she asked the elders to permit, herself, to, to permit her to go into the enemy's camp. So she exposed herself to peril and went out for love of her country and of her besieged people, and the Lord delivered Holofernes into the hand of a woman. Right. So the story is, you know, with Judith. Judith is a widow, this beautiful widow, young widow. She, had, she, she lost her husband at a young age. Many suitors came and asked for her hand. She refused them all. Instead, she wanted to be one of these. She wanted to be a holy widow, praising God and just living for God, living alone. So she wore her widow's garments, her mourning garments for years and years and years until the city was under siege. And then she, when the city was under siege and Holofernes and his army gave the people the, the opportunity to, to surrender or or die, uh, she said, you know what, don't even discuss it with them. Instead, everybody should take a fast and pray. And as for me, I'm going to, with your permission, I would like to go out and deal with this general myself. And so she puts on, she puts on her uh, courting clothes, I guess, and uh, goes out and uh, brings some uh, wine, cheese, and Feeds the general, gets him thirsty, gets him drunk. He falls asleep before he's able to uh, make his moves on her. And she cuts off his head, carries his head by his hair back to the city and says, Look, Hashem has delivered the city. So it's a great story. And the, the picture of Judith walking with the hairy head of Holofernes, you know, swinging it by, swinging this man's head by by the hair is kind of etched into Jewish consciousness, I think, especially around the festival of Hanukkah. And he gives another example. To no less danger did Esther, who was perfect in faith, expose herself in order that she might deliver the 12 tribes of Israel when they were about to be destroyed. And we know the story of Esther. For through her fasting and her humiliation, she entered the all-seeing master, the God she entreated, I read, I read, entered. She entreated the all-seeing master, the God of the ages, and he, seeing the humility of her soul, the, uh, the affliction, she is afflicting her soul with fasting, uh, he rescued the people for whose sake she had faced the danger. The Jewish people in the story of Purim. So here we have a Purim story. We just had Hanukkah and Purim. This is great. We had Hanukkah and Purim in the same chapter. And what's the point of these uh, examples of self-sacrifice? Again, remember, he's asking these people to show the same spirit, these rabble-rousers, these uh, rebels. He's asking them to show the same spirit of self-sacrifice and to step aside uh, in, in the name of peace. Therefore, let us also intercede for those who are involved in some transgression, that forbearance and humility may be given to them. So this is... 
this is the the schismatics. We're we're going to pray for them. Let's pray for these these rebels and these these upstarts, so that they may submit not to us but to the will of God. For in this way, the merciful remembrance of them in the presence of God and the saints will be fruitful and perfect for them. Which is that's a difficult sentence. The apparatus has a different. Uh, possible rendering says possibly they will prove fruitful and perfect when God and the saints remember them with mercy. Uh, The point is clear anyway, despite the inverted syntax of the sentence, the point is pretty clear. We're supposed to, as we pray for them and we intercede for them, we're praying that they should bear forth the fruit of righteousness, which is repentance, that they should repent. So he goes on, he says, let us accept correction. You know the word for correction in Hebrew? It's musar. So you you study musar, you're studying correction. Or discipline is another way to translate it. The musar teachings of of Judaism are, 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 you know, that's the most beautiful stuff. That's the stuff that really hits you, you know. That's, That's what Clement's referring to here, I suppose. Let us accept musar. Let's accept correction, which no one ought to resent, dear friends. Well, everybody does. I mean, have you ever, like, when do you ever, ever, ever correct someone? And they're like, well, thank you. You know, that just really made my day. I mean, that, that just never happens. I mean, I know that we should, but I, I never feel that. Like, you know, somebody comes up to me and, and, and give me, you know, what for or, or, you know, what I've done, you know, or point something out. I don't ever feel like, you know, I'm just, brother, I'm just so grateful. <laughs> Let's just pray right here. You know, just, just give up a prayer of praise for that word of correction. <laughs> no, it's just, it's absolutely... You know, something in the human spirit rises up. It's this defense of dignity. But biblically, we're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to accept the reproof. So he says, let us accept correction, which no one ought to resent, dear friends. The reproof which we give one to another is good, and it's exceedingly useful. You know, it's a mitzvah in the Torah. Rebuking you shall rebuke your brother and not share in his sin. So it's actually a mitzvah in the Torah. Oh, it's a mitzvah that is, if if you're going to skip a mitzvah, that's probably the one. <laughs> uh, I think it was Rabbi um, Akiva said that he didn't think there was any, I, I can't remember, it might have been, I think it was Rabbi Akiva, he said, I don't think there's anyone in our generation that's actually worthy to carry out this mitzvah. And if nobody was worthy in Rabbi Akiva's generation, you know. Anyway, you know, that's the apostolic era. Uh, anyway, so we should accept reproof when it comes to us, when it comes to us from Hashem, when it comes to us from our brothers and sisters. You know, and it's the principle of don't shoot the messenger, too. You know, a lot of times the person who's bringing you reproof has no business. <laughs> you know, they have no business saying such and such whatsoever. You know, they, they're just being snippy or something. And our, our reaction tends to be to be, you know, to get angry. But instead, we should ask Hashem, say, is this from you? What are you trying to tell me? Okay, I know that so-and-so is a jerk, you know, and that they're just being a jerk. But what are you trying to communicate to me? 
and then and and then that that kind of relieves that sense of like having to defend yourself and even being angry with the person all right so he says uh so the reproof we give one another is good it's exceedingly useful and it unites us with the will of god for thus says the holy word the lord has indeed disciplined me but he has not handed me over to death Psalm 118. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he punishes every son that he accepts. For the righteousness, for the righteous will discipline me in mercy and shall reprove me. But let not the oil of sinners anoint my head. That's Psalm 141. Doesn't sound familiar because that's the LXX, the Septuagint version of Psalm 141. And that's how it reads. In, in the Masoretic text, it reads, For the righteous will discipline me in mercy and shall reprove me. It will be like oil on my head. The rebuke of the righteous is like oil on my head. But the Septuagint takes it a different direction. It says, Let not the oil of sinners anoint my head. In other words, the Septuagint says, I would rather have the rebuke of the righteous than the flattery of sinners. The, the flattery of, of, uh, of insincere people. And again it says... Now we have a long passage, a long, long passage from the book of Job. Again, it says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord has reproved. Do not reject the correction of the Almighty. He causes pain, but he makes well again. He is wounded, but his hands have healed. Six times he will rescue you from distress, and in the seventh... Evil will not touch you. In famine, he will rescue you from death. And in war, he will release you from the power of the sword. From the scourge of the tongue, he will hide you. And you will not be afraid when evils approach. You will laugh at the unrighteous and wicked. And of the wild beasts, you will not be afraid. For wild beasts will be at peace with you. Then you will know that your house will be at peace and the tent in which you dwell will not fail. And you will know that your seed will be many. Your children will be like the grass of the fields. And you will come to the grave like ripe wheat harvested at the proper time. Or like a heap on the threshing floor gathered together at the right time. It's a beautiful passage. Clement seems to not have our, um, our hesitations about quoting from Job. I have a... I always hesitate about quoting from Job, lest I am quoting from one of Job's friends. But um, it's a beautiful passage. It says, You see, dear friends, what great protection there is for those who are disciplined by the Master, because He is a kind Father. He disciplines us in order that we may obtain mercy through His holy discipline, through His holy Musar. Now, all right, so we got the gist of that chapter. He's he's saying to these guys, he's saying, "Look, I know this is going to be hard, and you're going to be really up. You're not you're not going to be happy, uh, you know, submitting yourself to discipline and maybe being even thrown out of the community. But this is from Hashem. It's from Hashem's hand. And if you accept the discipline, you just step down and humble yourself and accept the discipline. It's going to go well with you, like this passage from Job. All right, we we'll look at chapter fifty-seven. I'm calling this the uh, call to the leaders to repent, which sounds redundant with other things we've seen. But really, this is where, uh, you know, we're, we're wrapping up this whole argument.
You, therefore, who laid the foundation of the revolt. You, see, you, can hear, you hear the finger pointing. You, therefore, who laid the foundation of this revolt, submit to the presbyters, that submit to the elders, the original elders, and accept discipline leading to repentance, bending the knees of your heart. Which is a nice phrase. I've never seen that before. Bending the knees of your heart. Learn how to subordinate yourselves. I've been reading a book that I got from Michael Kemp uh, called um, Everyday Sense. I was reading it at your house on Shabbat. Yeah, and it's, um, it's about these monks, Eastern Orthodox monks. It's really a beautiful book. It's um, about a monastery. You know, it's, it's a monastery in Russia. And these monks, when they're novices, they come in and they have to um, learn this art of submission. Just like, like Clement's talking about here, the subordination. It's just got these great stories. I mean, some of them are really frightening about the things that these... But the monk, he, does, he can't ask questions. He doesn't have a choice. He, 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 he goes in and he goes in and he's in a monk. And he's, he's a monk and that's just what he does. And they get up early, early, early in the morning. They're doing this very difficult physical labor. And then there's all these times of prayer. You know, and, you know it made me feel like just such... So low, because our times of prayer, it's like these three times of prayer that would probably take me 25 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, 10 minutes at night, you know, to say Shacharit Mariv Mincha on a, like a minimum sort of level. These guys are praying for hours and hours and hours. They're, they're saying, you know, this, uh, they're complaining about a service that goes four or five hours. It's around midnight, that sort of thing. Anyway, they have no choice. Or they do have a choice. They can leave. They can leave the monastery. But they're choosing to learn to submit, to submit themselves to the priests and the bishops and the people who are over them. Not because the priests and the bishops and the people who are over them are necessarily so wonderful, but because they're trying to submit to Christ, you know, they're trying to submit to God. It's a pretty inspiring book. Learn how to subordinate yourselves, laying aside the arrogant and proud stubbornness of your tongue. The arrogant and proud stubbornness of my tongue. For it is better for you to be found small, but included in the flock of Christ, than to have a preeminent reputation and yet be excluded from this hope. And so here we go into that, that whole idea of that Roman ego, then that uh, Greco Roman boasting, and versus what Yeshua is calling us to this, these lives of humility and self-abnegation. This passage makes me think of Matthew 18, where the master says, uh, or they, they, the disciples come to the master and say, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he says, he takes a child, he takes a Peter's kid or something, stands him up on the table. I'll tell you the truth. The truth, if, if, if you aren't converted in your heart and become like one of these children, become like this child, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, it's such an inversion of our values, such an inversion of our natural inclination. But this is what Clement's pointing at here. He says, it's better that you should, you know, be humiliated, that you should be humiliated in front of people, that you should uh, be scorned, and included in the flock of Christ, and that you should defend yourself and be all haughty and, and defend your pride and be 
excluded from salvation. For thus says all virtuous wisdom. Now he's going to quote another long passage. This one's from Proverbs chapter 1, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But it reads differently in the Septuagint, which Clement is quoting. Not very differently, but just enough to make me interested. So I'll read it to you. You know, when it says, uh, this is wisdom personified that's speaking in, in Proverbs 1, and she's saying, hey, you foolish people, you know, listen to me. And uh, she's personified as a woman. Of course, the early believers took that personification of wisdom as the spirit of Messiah speaking. So it says, listen, I will bring forth for you a saying of my spirit. This is wisdom talking. And I will teach you my word because I called and you did not obey. I held out words and you paid no attention. You ignored my advice and disobeyed my correction, my musar. I therefore will laugh at your destruction, will rejoice when ruin over, comes upon you and when confusion suddenly overtakes. Uh, catastrophe arrives like a whirlwind or when tribulation and distress comes upon you. At that time, when you call upon me, I will not listen to you. Evil men will seek me out and will not find me, for they hated wisdom. They did not choose the fear of the Lord, nor did they desire to pay attention to my advice, but mocked my correction, my musar. Therefore, they will eat the fruit of their own way, and they will, they will be filled with their own ungodliness. Because they wronged infants, they will be slain. That's a, Because they wronged infants, they will be slain? Another translation says, because they wronged the simple, they will be slain. Uh, and this makes this this reminds me again of Yeshua. I would re refer to his disciples. He referred to his disciples as children, little ones, infants, referring to their humble hearts and their humble attitude that they had adopted as disciples of Yeshua. It just seems so beautiful. It just seems so beautiful to think of that. It, it's not it's not um, that we should have a childlike faith. A childlike ignorance or something like that, but a childlike humility. And, you know, children aren't humble anymore. <laughs> I mean, not, but, but you have to think of the children in the ancient world <laughs> who actually, you know, didn't like talk back to adults and, and uh, think that they were all that and more and had a lot of self-confidence training and, you know, a lot of nonsense like that. A lot of television teaching them to be sassy you know we wouldn't even we'd never let our kids watch those like kids programs when they were growing up not because there was anything wrong with them except the attitude of the kids they're just so sassy and it was just like always so like oh isn't this funny how sassy these kids are and how they are so disrespectful and so we that was our main thing was it was the thing we were trying to shelter them from was was that disrespectful attitude so okay we can go on here it says they wronged infants because they wronged infants they will be slain and a searching inquiry will destroy the ungodly but the one who hears me will dwell safely trusting in hope and will live quietly free from fear of all evil that's that's proverbs chapter 1 23 through 33 all right we're going to do one more chapter all right let us therefore obey his most holy and glorious name thereby escaping the threats which were spoken by wisdom long ago against those who disobey. Some of those threats sounded pretty terrible. Wisdom's going to laugh at us when destruction comes and calamity and confusion overtakes us. And Wisdom's going to be off there laughing. Ha, ha. 
told you, you know, so, so we want to avoid that situation. Uh, we should obey God, we obey his, his name. And, and it says that we may dwell safely trusting in his most holy and majestic name, trusting in, in the name of Yeshua. Accept our advice. So here's his bottom line. Accept our advice and you have nothing to regret. For as God lives and as Jesus Christ lives, you recognize this form. I, it's, it's shocking to me when I saw it here. I, I was like, whoa, that's bold. You know, this is a, the Old Testament formulation, the Old, Old Testament vow like King David would take. As Hashem lives or Hashem would say, as I live, you know, and. Uh, so he's he's actually making a vow. He's swearing a vow, an oath, according to the Old Testament formula. It says, For as God lives, and as the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and the Holy Spirit, who are the faith and the hope of the elect, so surely will the one who with humility and constant gentleness has kept, without regret, the ordinances and commandments given by God be enrolled and included among the number of those who are saved through Jesus Christ. So here's Clement's formula for salvation. This is pretty radical, I think. Keep the Torah. Keep the commandments. If you keep the commandments of Hashem, you know, without regret, in humility and gentleness, you know, consistently, you will surely be enrolled and included among the number of those who are saved through Jesus Christ. And then he concludes that thought with, through whom is the glory, to him forever and ever. Amen. And that, of course, is a doxology. It's our seventh doxology in the epistle of 